This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 123, Dramatis Personae. This is your recap and preview episode to help get you ready for the resumption of the narrative. We also have a few bits of business left over from the end of the century. And that includes a couple of listener questions. Listener GP wonders who are our sources for this time period, are we up to more than just the two we had for the previous century? I had avoided mentioning sources uh, during the narrative because the answer is complicated, but here we go. First thing to remember is that although Nicephorus and Theophanes were our only two manuscripts for the 8th century, they were not the only sources as such. They both used the writing of earlier chroniclers to put together their manuscripts. It's just that the work of those older writers has now been lost. The same applies to the men I'm about to mention. So Theophanes's chronicle cut out in 813, just when Crum was running wild in the Balkans. The next closest source in time comes to us from George the Monk, who was writing in the 860s during Michael III's reign. George was more interested in Christian history, and the purpose of his work was to glorify the restoration of icons, ending his work in 842. One of the major benefits of his account is that he lived through the civil war between Michael of Amorium and Thomas the Slav, and his testimony tips the scale toward the version of events that I gave you, rather than the account which Michael presented afterwards. The other four manuscripts were all finished in the 10th century. Several of them were commissioned by Constantine VII, the son who our last emperor Leo VI took four marriages to produce. According to Warren Treadgold, Two of these texts are unreliable and include plenty of legends amongst the truth. These are the Chronicle of Genesius and Theophanes Continuatus, who you may have worked out aimed to continue Theophanes' chronicle. Both men were commissioned by the emperor and therefore sought to improve Basil's reputation 
at the expense of Michael III, hence Michael the Drunkard. Then we have two more reliable works from Simeon the Logothete and an unknown author who has been labelled Pseudo-Simeon. These texts make use of slightly different sources and give us better rounded pictures of Michael III and Nicephorus I. Most of these men were only born around the time our narrative stopped, and all of them seem to have been palace officials at some point. So these are all official accounts, there is no secret history amongst them, though I should say that we also have texts from the Arab world and the Western neighbours and various letter collections and hagiography to round out the written sources. Speaking of Leo VI and his four marriages, listener A.W. asks, what did the average Christian think about that? about the four marriages, and in general, the emperor's special status in the world of the church, where he seems above the law and can sack bishops for political reasons. It's an excellent question, but as ever when talking about public opinion in Byzantium, we can only make educated guesses. The sources we have very rarely express the views of ordinary people. But there are several things I can tell you. The most concrete being that Constantine VII, the boy who Leo went to all these efforts for, would remain popular in the capital for most of his life. Despite the serious issues of sin and law discussed by churchmen, the histories imply that the wider populace were not bothered. From their point of view, the Macedonian dynasty had been ruling for over 40 years, they were a stable and well-liked family, and after much struggle, Leo had produced a healthy boy, born in the purple room of the imperial palace. The boy was a Constantinopolitan through and through. The people would support his claim to the throne in the face of the various competitors across the decades. I suspect that for many people, the desire of a father to produce a son was far more relatable than the strictures of canon law. And out in the provinces, people got remarried all the time, as you would expect in a world where medicine was so undeveloped. The scandal of Leo's behaviour was felt more acutely in the capital's churches. The patriarch, Nicholas Mysticus, was put in a very difficult position. The church had laws, and if he didn't defend them, then he would lose his legitimacy in the eyes of his colleagues. But at the same time, if he refused to cooperate with the emperor, he would probably be sacked, which he soon was. Under these circumstances, the urban clergy were forced to take sides, and the matter became a political affair. Men's careers and reputations were on the line. But did this issue cause divisions out in the themes in Anatolia? Probably not. And I think that's part of the answer to the question of the emperor sacking bishops for political reasons. The number of people who would be aware of the specifics of what had happened uh, and really understand the issues would be very small. Uh, I think for a lot of people, even if they were told accurate information, it would just sound like hearsay and gossip. And the further you got from the capital 
the information got less reliable. So I'm not sure there was a lot of outrage about patriarchs being sacked, except uh, within the capital itself, and particularly amongst the ranks of the clergy and the officials, who of course knew all the details. But I want to draw out something about the medieval mindset here, or our perception of it. I want to get back to the ordinary people and what they might have thought about church matters in this case. The way I interpret listener A.W.'s question is kind of, shouldn't a Byzantine Christian be more upset about the emperor's behavior? After all, this is a person who believes in miracles and that demons lurk around every corner, someone who is a Christian fundamentalist in our eyes, who takes religion very seriously, someone who might think... It's outrageous that the emperor isn't obeying the law of the church. His sin will bring disaster and defeat down upon us. Something must be done. Now, I'm not saying listener A.W. Uh, thinks that that was the case, but I just wanted to establish a baseline from which to work with. From everything I've read, I don't get the impression that Byzantine people were like that, that they were any more religious than people in any other society across time. Some people went to church every day, some went once a week, some went only on major festivals, some didn't go at all. There may have been far more superstition, as we would see it, or ritual behavior based around religious ideas, but actual piety and belief and conviction was probably not that different. Whenever we hear sermons from Byzantine preachers. They are urging people to change their behavior. Whenever church law is written down, it is condemning sinful or pagan behavior that is going on centuries after it was first banned. In hagiography, saints are constantly wrestling with everyday common sins which we are perfectly familiar with today. So on a personal level, most people probably had the same attitude to Leo's fourth marriage as we would today. Either, good for him, I like him, yay for the baby prince, or, typical, different rules for the rich and powerful, what a joke this system is. Another example to support this idea is Antony Caldellus's book, The Byzantine Republic. As you'll recall, his thesis was that the regular civil wars and usurpations are reflective of a lively political culture, one where the people felt that the emperor could forfeit his right to rule through bad behavior or unpopular lawmaking. That attitude flies in the face of those who think of the Byzantines as deeply pious and concerned with church law. If they really believed that the emperor was God's vice-regent on earth, then how could he possibly be removed? Instead, the Byzantines lived in a world that was familiar to people for most of human history. Religion was important, very important, but the realities of political life continued regardless. I'm sure there were some in the pews who argued that the emperor should not be above the law, and that Leo was a sinner whose fourth marriage was illegal, and whose son was illegitimate, but most likely the rest of the pew was filled with people who disagreed or were unsure, were uninterested, or were just afraid to rock the boat, and so shrugged. I think our focus on elite-level religious discussions can lead, uh, understandably, 
listeners to get the impression that uh, Byzantine shopkeepers and farmers were all concerned with the nature of Christ and what role icons should play and who was the patriarch, but probably they weren't. Listener A.W. points out, though, that corruption and rule-breaking, such as this, uh, by the papacy, eventually led to Protestantism. He asks whether any movement like this existed in Byzantium, and whether the Paulicians were representatives of this. Uh, Briefly, uh, at its core, Protestantism as it developed was a movement which tried to strip away church-led religious behavior to find divine truth that had become obscured. The way it played out had a logical, literate flavor going back to the Bible. The Paulicians and other groups like them do indeed come from a rejection of the sometimes dry intellectual side of the mainstream, in this case Chalcedonian orthodoxy, but their expression of rebellion is completely different from European Protestantism. As I've said before, we don't know a huge amount about the Paulicians, but its core was not in rational examination, but in passionate expression. The Paulicians emphasized the battle between good and evil. Its popularity lay partly in the natural emotions that a struggle between Christ the good and the evil devil provoke in a believer. It was a more visceral, immediately comprehensible faith than the complex Christology of Constantinople. Unlike the Protestants, the Paulicians were not attempting to reform the central Byzantine church. Uh, They were rejecting it, and their rejection sprang from their distance to it. Their lives up in the Armenian mountains were a long way from the Hagia Sophia, and so they sought an expression of spirituality that felt more relevant to their needs. Back in Byzantium, no reform movements like Protestantism have yet been seen, in part because the whole established clergy depended so completely on the emperor and the patriarch for their salaries. And also, uh, this was rule-breaking for the emperor alone, in the case we're talking about, and he occupied a unique place that was part of the fabric of society. It wasn't as if the clergy themselves were all marrying for the fourth time, but telling their parishioners that they weren't allowed to. Speaking of the controversy which spawned Constantine VII, uh, we need to update the Constantine acrostic that we're slowly creating. Uh, Listener SM still gets all the credit for the template that I'm now using, which so far sounds like this. Christianized the Roman state, oldest offspring of the great, nearly reigned 100 days, saved the city, so they say. Theophanes called him dung, assassinated by his mom. That is Constantine's 1 to 6. This century we'll be able to assess number 7 and hopefully find a suitable rhyme the following century with number 8. Uh, when I think we'll also get 9 and 10. 
All suggestions, edits, and alternate versions are welcome. Speaking of which, listener J.A., a man not daunted by a challenge, went and wrote the entire list of all Roman emperors out in rhyme. Yes, from Augustus to Constantine Eleventh in one poetic creation, you can now read listener J.A.'s monumental effort over at thehistoryofbyzantium.com. Uh, click on the News tab if you have trouble finding it, and uh, bravo. So, thanks to all that, we've now been reminded of the major event of the recent past. Leo VI married his fourth wife, Zoe Carbonopsina, after she produced a healthy son named Constantine. But just seven years later, Leo died, plunging the palace into quite the succession crisis. This crisis will take eight years to resolve, and the man who will become senior emperor at that point isn't much of a player at this stage of events. In order to remind you of all the characters and their positions uh, vis-a-vis one another, I need to tell you a story. It's a tale I simplified significantly during the narrative because it wasn't important at that time, but now I think it will serve a useful purpose. One of Leo's most trusted ministers was an Arab eunuch named Simonus. It was a typically Byzantine success story that one could be born into a Muslim family outside of the empire, suffer castration, be sold in slavery to the Romans, and yet still end up as one of the most rich and powerful people in the empire. Men like Simonus were invaluable to Leo. Despite the good relations that he kept with Nicephorus Phocus and Andronicus Ducus, these men represented a growing rival power base. They were magnates, lords of the countryside, with family and friends extending across the eastern borderlands. Simonus had nothing. He owed everything he had to the emperor. His intelligence, work ethic, and loyalty had endeared him to Leo, and he'd been entrusted with ever greater responsibility. In the summer of 904, Simonus left the capital and made his way east. He took the public post, and as he went, he began cutting the hamstrings of all the horses on the route. This raised alarm bells, and word was sent ahead that he should be stopped. Simonus made it to the Harlis River in the Anatolicon before he was apprehended. He claimed he'd been heading to a local religious shrine, but it seemed more likely he was trying to defect. The man who marched him back to Constantinople was Constantine Ducas, son of Andronicus Ducas, the domestic of the Scoli, which you now know means he was the empire's leading military commander. When they got home, an investigation was held. The emperor, still loyal to Simonus, asked Constantine to lie for him. Just tell them he was going on pilgrimage. Constantine agreed initially, but when the investigating officials asked him to swear an oath, he told them the truth. Leo was annoyed by this, and grudgingly sentenced Simonus to... months of house arrest in an urban mansion, 
after which he was fully restored to his position. Now, this story has all sorts of confusion attached to it because it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. If Simonus really did mutilate innocent horses, then clearly he was lying about something. But if he was trying to defect, why would Leo punish him so lightly? Clearly we don't have the full story, but what emerges from this incident is a healthy enmity between Simonus and the Ducas family. 904 was the same year that Thessalonica was sacked by the Arabs. Leo ordered reprisals, one of which was a naval assault, which was ready to launch two years later. The admiral of the fleet was a man named Himerios. He was a relative of the Empress Zoe. He was given orders to sail round to the Anatolicon and pick up Andronicus Ducas and his troops. They would then launch an amphibious raid into Cilicia. However, Simonus managed to persuade a friend of Andronicus's to write him a letter while he was assembling his men. The note said that the whole campaign against the Arabs was a sham. Himerius was really there to arrest Andronicus and blind him on a charge of conspiracy. The scheme played out beautifully for the eunuch. Himerius arrived in good spirits and invited Andronicus to join him on his ship. The general refused. Himerius was naturally angry at this delay, which only aggravated Andronicus's suspicions. The admiral was well aware of the need to strike in the best sailing weather, and so moved on without the general. He sailed to Cilicia to carry out a scaled-down raid of his own. Seeing the ship sail in the direction of the caliphate, Andronicus began to suspect that he'd been fooled. But it was too late now. He would be investigated for refusing an imperial order, stripped of his titles, and possibly charged with conspiracy anyway. So he took his family and retainers and fled to his hideout in the mountains. This was another trick of the powerful magnate families, Often their extensive territories and connections allowed them to have a little fortress of their own. He stayed there for six months while Leo wrote to him, trying to sort out the situation. But seeing no way back into Byzantine society, Andronicus reluctantly crossed the border and put himself in the hands of the emir of Tarsus. The emir forwarded the new arrivals on to Baghdad. Again, we're left to wonder what really happened. We do know that Leo, again, harboured no ill will toward the Ducai. He wrote to Andronicus promising him that he would be forgiven if he returned to the Empire. However, this message was found by the Caliph's men, who insisted that Andronicus stay and convert to Islam, which he did. In fact, there is an Egyptian official recorded soon after this, called Abul Hassan, Duca el Rumi, and it's fun to speculate that this was where some of his family ended up. Not his son Constantine, though. He and a few retainers escaped, or were released, and made it back to Byzantium. By 909, Constantine had been restored to authority as the Stratichos of Charsianan, and when Leo died in 912, Constantine was serving 
in his father's old post of domestic of the Scoli. In the meantime, though, Leo had used the Andronicus affair to get his fourth marriage approved. As you may recall, the patriarch was Nicholas Mysticus. Nicholas had studied at the feet of Photius at the same time as Leo, and the emperor had promoted his old friend through the ranks and may have thought he'd got a pliable archbishop thanks to this connection. But Nicholas was smart, eloquent, and knew that his reputation would be made by fighting for the interests of the church. He showed unusual courage by closing the doors of the Hagia Sophia on Leo during their dispute. The emperor was determined to get his way, though, and whispers in his ear told him that the patriarch was in correspondence with Andronicus Ducas. Probably this was perfectly innocent, and only natural for two of the empire's most powerful men. Particularly during the time Andronicus was being besieged and needed an advocate at the capital. But Leo used these letters to point to a charge of conspiracy and Nicholas was removed from office. He was replaced by the emperor's spiritual advisor, Euthymius. He was no pushover, but he did recognise Leo's marriage to Zoe while refusing to call her empress. This caused the divide in the church between pro-Nicholas and pro-Euthymius prelates, which was a particularly damaging state of affairs, given everyone had just gone through the divide between Photius and Ignatius a generation before. Simonus, meanwhile, had fallen from office. In order to ingratiate himself with his master's fourth wife, he'd presented her with a protégé of his uh, to serve as her chamberlain. Uh, this eunuch, Constantine, did such a good job that he began to have more influence over the imperial couple than Simonus himself. The Arab eunuch chafed at this and tried to frame Constantine for various things, which finally forced Leo to exile him. The final man who we should not forget in this impending Game of Thrones is the Emperor's brother, Alexander. Yes, Basil's youngest boy had been crowned Emperor, but never enjoyed any formal power. Leo had kept him cloistered in the palace and had even separated him from his wife to prevent him producing imperial heirs. This unhappy situation has led historians to ponder why Leo kept Alexander around rather than removing him as a rival. One suggestion is that Basil had lectured his sons repeatedly on the importance of family. Basil knew better than anyone how hard it was to get to the top, and he was determined for his family to stay there. Conscious of this, perhaps, Leo had refused to remove his brother from the picture, and now as he lay dying, he begged him to protect his seven-year-old boy and allow him to succeed to the throne eventually. Next time on the podcast, the narrative will resume. It may not surprise you to learn that Alexander will not last long, leaving all the aforementioned characters to battle it out over who would dominate the regency for young Constantine VII. The eight-year struggle that follows will be exacerbated by the actions of another character you should be familiar with, 
Simeon of Bulgaria. Brought up in Constantinople, he knew the Byzantines well, and had so far skillfully used this knowledge to extract a favourable peace treaty and an annual tribute. The first few episodes of the podcast will be a repeat from a century ago, as the Byzantines get their asses kicked by the Bulgarians, prompting another standoff at the Theodosian Walls. Once that situation is finally negotiated, the Romans can return to the Eastern Front. This century is going to see a spectacular series of victories as the magnate generals overturn city after city and roll the borders back into Syria and Armenia. But with this success will come rising tensions between the magnates and the urban aristocracy of Constantinople. The two sides will come to serious blows during the reign of the emperor Basil II. Join me next week as our adventure resumes, and stay tuned for After the Music for another announcement. For those of you interested in architecture, ancient, medieval, or modern, David Getzen from the Lapsus Lima podcast is teaching at a pioneering new school opening this fall. The Building Beauty course grants a one-year international master's in architecture offered at the Benincasa University in Naples, Italy. Located on a picturesque bluff just outside the old walls that Belisarius breached during the Gothic Wars, the course explores how beauty changes the world in an ecological and evolutionary architectural practice. Founded on Christopher Alexander's principles, you may know works of his such as A Pattern Language and The Nature of Order, and guided by his close colleagues, it teaches to build in such a way that heals the people and the land. Head on over to buildingbeauty.net for more information. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.